This is Voicemail, the Universal Postal Union's podcast covering the wonderful world of mail. I'm your host, Ian Kerr. In this episode, we're joined by historian Dr. Léonard Laborie. He's from the National Centre for Scientific Research in Paris, and he'll share a historical perspective of the UPU, multilateralism, and the postal world. Joining me on the line is Dr. Léonard Laborie. He's historian at the National Centre for Scientific Research. Welcome. Let's start with this, the question that we ask all of our guests on the UPU Voicemail podcast. Tell us, what was your first memory of the post? Good question. Thanks, uh, Ian, for asking. Well, uh, spontaneously, I would say the, the STEM collection that I started around 10, uh, when I was 10 years old. Um, but, it, but, but maybe if I reflect more on this, um, I can add and the bills, the utility bills that my mother used to receive, and it was not always a good news, you know, it caused some trouble at home. So that's another dimension of, of my postal memory. Nobody really looks forward to receiving a bill, I suppose. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about your academic career then. In your academic career, how did you get to focus on communications and transport? What, what sort of triggered your interest in this as a researcher? I engaged in research just when the internet and the mobile phones get popularized in Europe was at the end of the uh, 1990s. And exploring the past of communication networks uh, that were just revolutionizing our day-to-day life was extremely appealing for the, for the, the, the master student that I was. And I was intrigued in particular on the international aspect of this revolution. You could send an email to anyone connected, whatever is location on the planet. You could use your mobile phone wherever in Europe and beyond. So I asked myself, who were the actors and institutions that made this possible? Uh, were there precedents? And I soon realized that the mail and the post were forerunners of this global connectivity together with the telegraph in the 19th century already. And also realized that the, the Universal Postal Union should be a a key site of research for anyone interested in the history of, of the governance of cross-border communication flows. The grant program of the Committee for the History of La Poste in France helped me to, to realize this. Uh, this to say that when there is a grant to promote a field of research, it has some effects. And... Uh, well, in my case, it drove me to this topic too. Well, then how did posts and telecommunications become a testing ground for the very first sprouts of multilateralism at the end of the 19th century? The answer is usually that this was the logical or even technological thing to do since communications networks are designed to communicate and their usefulness increases with the number of points connected, it was more rational and economical to establish standards and, and general agreements 
than a series of bilateral provisions. And in, indeed, it's what happened. Bilateral agreements between neighboring countries gradually gave way to multilateral agreements. Uh, and the communication sector was the first to give rise to a global and lasting organization of, of relations between states. We can say that to, with the Universal Postal Union and a few years before the, the International Telegraph Union, uh, we have the origin of the global governance of globalization itself. But historians show that the path was not predetermined. It was not so direct to go from the bilateral to the multilateral setting. Uh, the, the agreements that were reached at these years, we speak about the 1860s, 1870s, bared the mark of the context in which they were drawn. For instance, you, you can find pleas already in the 1850s for the abolition of transit fees for uh, the setting of a, of a common universal rate. But it took almost 20, 25 years to, to get there, to have the founding convention that established the Universal Postal Union signed. So the way was not direct. This is, this is one, one point to, to keep in, in mind. If you look at the details, then, if you look at the convention in the detail, you find that the negotiations between postal officers and diplomats shaped and changed the agreements over time in, in multiple ways on various issues, so, such as common rates, voting rights, etc., etc. You will find a lot of negotiation tensions, and evolutions. So um, nothing predetermined. How did the world change after the foundation of these first international organizations? And did they fulfill their intended purpose like immediately and indeed over time? Mm. Difficult to say. Uh, the world did not change overnight because of, of this new way to rule over international postal telegraphic relations. Um, the convention founding the UPU in, in 1874 did not change the world overnight. But, but contemporaries acknowledge the importance of, of this organization. Um, unsurprisingly, this is true from the postal officers and, and the other delegates who signed the convention and who managed the institution that resulted from it. But it proved also to be the case from a larger group of experts in international law, journalists, politicians, who truly considered this organization, the UPU, the Telegraph Union, to be the greatest political innovation of the time. First, uh, because they simply made international communications easier. It was indeed cheaper and safer than ever before to send or receive a letter across borders. And 
flows did not only increase significantly after the creation of, of the UPU, they also diversified with samples of merchandise, commercial papers, newspapers, and later on even postcards, parcel posts, money orders being included in these postal services. So you see the significance of change brought about by, by the Universal Postal Union. This increase and diversification followed and allowed at the same time one of the most intense periods of human mobility. At the end of the uh, 19th century, so 150 years ago, millions of people moved around the planet for shorter or longer stays abroad. The circulation was even more intense than today in proportion. And communicating from abroad, receiving or sending news, samples of merchandise, etc., was part and parcel of this big, uh, big move around the planet um, with, with mass migration and, and an intensification of global commerce. I have mentioned the, the, the letter, the postcard, etc., etc., but you can find services that have disappeared since then and which illustrate this need for denser communication across borders with, with um, the phonopost, for instance. The phonopost, I don't know if you know about that, was, was a service that allowed you to register a gramophone, a, a disc, in the post office and to send it with a special rate abroad so that your correspondent could hear, not read, but hear you. So this was before international telephony. Well, it, it was not at the end of the 19th century, but more in the 20s, 30s of the 20th century that this kind of service emerged. We don't know that much about this service. It's very cer certainly research to be done on, on, on this past international communication practices. Let's talk a bit about the UPU and the UN. So the adhesion of the UPU to the United Nations in 1948 changed the UP's ro UPU's role and position in the world in any way. And, I mean, do you think it was natural even for the UP, UPU to join the UN? And do you have any comments on how being part of the UN system impacts the mission of the UPU and the way it operates? Joining the UPU, I, I've... I've I've done research on that, and I can say joining the UPU was not natural at all. Um, the UPU became an, a specialized agency of the, of the United Nations system in November uh, 1947. Before that, postal administrations and the host of the International Bureau, Switzerland, had made sure not to include the UPU as part of the League of Nations, the, the United Nations predecessor, which was founded just after the First World War in, in 1990. And this in spite of some pressure to include the UPU and other international unions into the frame of the League of Nations. The reason for this resistance was to keep international politics 
outside of postal cooperation as far as possible. In other words, to, to immunize the UPU from diplomatic tensions. And indeed, in, in the uh, 1930s, oh. Germany, USSR, and other countries had left the League of Nations, but they remain active members of the UPU. So this design proved effective, efficient. But after the Second World War, it was no longer possible for the postal administrations, the, the members of the UPU and Switzerland, to further resist being included in the larger framework. So the UPU was isolated and it, it wanted to be isolated until the um, 1940s and became um, part of the UN in, in 45, 47. People and the founding members of the United Nations wanted to make it stronger than the League. And, and one way to make the UN stronger was to include those, these uh, international organizations that were already there. And the UPU one was one of, of these. The nations had to be united by all means to prevent war, cultivate peace and to solve common social and, and economic issues. This uh, inclusion was the matter of harsh negotiations. Um, how far should the UPU be dependent on the, on the UN? How far the rules of the UN should apply to the UPU uh, was a much contested uh, issue. For instance, there were some countries that were banned from the UN, like Spain. Spain could not join the UN at the beginning, uh, Fran Franco Spain. Uh, but it was part of the UPU. So how to deal with this? And uh, an agreement was, was found. And to, to sum it up, um, it, it created a very loose connection uh, between the UPU and the UN. So in principle, the UPU was a member, a specialized agency. But if you look in the detail, uh, the relation is, is kept um, loose. So Spain could stay in the UPU, even if it was not part of the UN. Um, the UPU had to report at some point to the UN, not, not more, not that more. So, it, um, Joining the UN was a change. It had some implication in the long term, but in the short term, it didn't change that, that much. The, the mission and the way the, the UPU functioned. Good example is, is technical assistance, for instance. Up until the early uh, 1960s, the UPU barely participated to the UN technical assistance program. And it was later on that, uh, that the UPU became more involved in this, in this scheme. You mentioned earlier about the UN's role in peace and conflict prevention. In your opinion, what does the role of, of technical international organizations like the UPU have in times of conflict and war? Can you share any examples? Mm. Well, 
First, uh, I must acknowledge that uh, we historians have little studied uh, international organizations during wartime. Uh, this because international organizations were intended to foster cooperation and to prevent conflict more than to deal with conflict. Um, so war is, is uh, primarily viewed as, as a failure of this of this system, the international organization. But uh, this does not mean that uh, UPU and other international organizations ceased their operation during wars, for, of course, um, because it was based in uh, neutral Switzerland, the International Bureau of the UPU was able to carry on some basic tasks to your, during the First and the Second World War. In both conflicts, Switzerland and the International Bureau of the UPU played a key role in enabling the free postage to and from prisoners of war and uh, later on to civilian internees. This proved a, a key role in times of, of war for this uh, organization. Uh, but so far, the uh, neutralization of postal channels, uh, that is the, the, the free access to postal transit through belligerent countries, uh, never took shape. It was something um, asked for, argued for, but it never took shape. So the post is not neutral uh, when, he, when there is a war. The UPU will hold its first Historians' Colloquium this year. Uh, it's taking place in a few weeks' time in Bern, in fact. And the theme is Achieving a Single Postal Territory, a global promise, past and present. So looking back, do you think the UPU has fully delivered on the global promise of its creators? Article 1 of the treaty that later became a convention, that's international law, but uh, Article 1 says, indeed, the members intend to create or to form together a single postal territory. And this meant that there was an obligation to process international mail. And including transit mail, that, that was the big, uh, the big thing. Uh, transit, tra uh, processing transit mail became an obligation. And uh, also the, uh, the founding treaty um, set the, the goal of having one single uniform and relatively cheap rate for international postage. And, and they, the, the members and the UPU, they did achieve this. That's, that's, um, big enough, uh, I would say. That's an, uh, a true uh, achievement. They have delivered uh, since then. At the same time, though, we have to keep in mind that uh, uniformity, if, if this makes sense, uh, was, uh, was never fully achieved, never total. For instance, the uniform rate for sending a letter abroad, whatever the destination, 
whatever the place where you send it from, was replaced after World War I by a more flexible scheme with one common rate in principle, but the possibility to deviate from it. You can also find special agreements for some international services not offered or accepted everywhere in the Universal Postal Union. So one of the first um, special agreements between a certain number of members was for money orders. Another one was for parcel post. So you see no global uniformity, something more nuanced. And the other key idea behind the uh, the Universal Postal Union was the uh, abolition of um, international accounting between administration. This to, to facilitate the relations, to, to simplify. The limit was that transit fees were never abolished. So as many, many militated for, but at the end, transit fees were never abolished. So you transiting Mail is an obligation, but not free of charge. And for this reason, uh, the single postal territory was not synonymous with the the total suppression, abolition of international accounting between postal administration. Just returning to the uh, UPU historians um, colloquium being held in Bern, what do you hope this colloquium will bring to light? The colloquium will take place, uh, yes, in a few weeks, uh, beginning of February, to, yes, mark the anniversary of the foundation of the UPU under the slogan 150 years of enabling communication and empowering people across nations. That's the the slogan for the whole year of celebration. And I hope that the colloquium will critically assess if and how the UPU and its members empowered communities across countries and years. And in general, I hope uh, this meeting will bring to light what this impressive uh, figure, 150 years, uh, what, what this figure could obscurate. I mean, the fragilities the UPU is, is has a long story, but has always been, in a way, with its weaknesses. I hope to see also the contingencies, the evolutions, the negotiated nature of postal cooperation. So, contrary to the idea of a predetermination of postal cooperation being a given, hey, look at this long history. It was natural. It it's always it has always been there. I hope to to show that the UPU has never been outside history, and history is made of negotiations, tensions, contest, conflict. Even when we look at cooperation, we we have to consider um, how it was a way to mitigate conflicts, to overcome conflict. Conflict is is still and always there. In general, participants will bring multiple perspectives on, on this. Uh, we will learn from from the foundational period for sure, uh, but uh, not only from a European perspective, as yes, much of the of the founders were postal administrations located in Europe, 
but we will also have the, the view from Turkey, uh, Japan, China, countries that early on joined the, the UPU and, and why they joined, how they joined, and this based on, on archives from these countries. Uh, we will raise the question of the politics of postal cooperation, how the UPU both contributed uh, to stabilizing, naturalizing a colonial order and became, on the other hand, a site where to contest this disorder. Uh, we will also contribute to, I hope, historicizing philately as a cultural practice and discover how the coordinated fight against fraud gave birth to public global stem collections across the, the world. Um, we'll also uh, deal with um, the standardization of uh, the envelope. So we will go deep into the standardization process. Um, and uh, yes, there, there was interesting debates in the 60s how to standardize uh, the envelope itself. And that's maybe a last example of, of what we will discuss during the, the conference. We will learn from the uh, 1980s debates on the rise of electronic, uh, electronic mail. The UPU was a place where postal administrations dealt with this emerging uh, phenomenon, practice, emailing. And uh, yes, we will go back to the early days of email through postal debates. Until then, uh, uh, until then, the UPU has reflected on its past alone. With a few exceptions, the UPU history has been written by the UPU itself, if, if you see what I mean. Uh, and this on the occasion of a few landmark anniversaries. The, the first annu anniversary was the 25th anniversary that was celebrated, and it it came along with uh, an history of the, the organization. And this is the, the first time when uh, the, the UPU opens is, itself to, to professional historians uh, on this kind of, of event. And I am I'm grateful, I must say, to the Director General of, of the International Bureau, Mr. Metoki, and, and to his team, including his, his Director of Cabinet, Mr. Boussard, for their support and, and openness. That's new, and, and I hope that, that this attitude will generate, conversely, uh, more interest from the academic community on, on this topic. It's only a start. Uh, this conference is only a start and there is much more to be done on the history of the UPU. So a milestone anniversary is also an opportunity to look forward as well. I mean, you just mentioned the occasional fragility of international organizations and some might also say that anything that's precious can also be fragile. Anyway, enough of the philosophy from me. What I'm really trying to ask is what, what do you see in the future for the UPU? I mean, do you think we'll make it to 200 years? And uh, what do you, how do you see the evolution of the UPU and the global postal network going forward, especially in light of what you just said with regard to things like the emergence of email and alternative means of communication? Well, the, first of all, the historian is not the good one to, or the best place to 
look and, and predict uh, any kind of, of future for sure. But what I can say is that, uh, that the history of the UPU was made mainly by public postal operators with the support of their governments and around a key service, a key object even, the letter. Now, the, the postal sector is faced with a decline in letter traffic, which depends and, and varies uh, along the, the regions in the world, and the rise of parcels, which is also the business of other operators. So to me, the future of the UPU is about accommodating with these trends, uh, taking into account another disruptive factor you often deal with in your podcast, Ian, being artificial uh, intelligence. This is another issue uh, for, for, for the future, another component of the future. So I believe that postal operators can better face these challenges together than, than separated. So my take on this would be that out of necessity, but also due to the uh, social political role of postal operators and, and services in the fabric and maintenance of territorial polities, I foresee a 200th uh, anniversary in, in 2074 for the UPU. I think there is strong arguments and factors that should enable the UPU to further strive and, and develop. Dr. Leonard Labori, historian at the National Center for Scientific Research, thank you very much for joining us on the UPU Voicemail podcast today. You've been listening to Voicemail, the official podcast of the Universal Postal Union. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and you'll get each episode downloaded to the device of your choosing as it's released. My thanks to the team at the UPU for their help putting together this episode. I'm your host, Ian Kerr, and I look forward to your company next time on Voicemail, the podcast of the UPU.